Section 20 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 26. Where was Lord Palmerston? Part 1. Meantime, where was Lord Palmerston? He, of all men, one would think, must have been pleased with the turn things were taking. He had had from the beginning little faith in any issue of the negotiations but war. Probably he did not really wish for any other result. We are well inclined to agree with Mr. Kinglake that of all the members of the cabinet he alone clearly saw his way and was satisfied with the prospect. But according to the supposed nature of his office, he had now nothing to do with the war or with foreign affairs, except as every member of the cabinet shares the responsibility of the whole body. He had apparently about as much to do with the war as the postmaster general or the chancellor for the Duchy of Lancaster might have had. He had accepted the office of Home Secretary. He had declared that he did not choose to be Foreign Secretary any more. He affirmed that he wanted to learn something about home affairs and to get to understand his countrymen and so forth. He was really very busy all this time in his new duties. Lord Palmerston was a remarkably efficient and successful Home Secretary. His unceasing activity loved to show itself in whatever department he might be called upon to occupy. He brought to the somewhat prosaic duties of his new office not only all the virile energy, but also all the enterprise which he had formerly shown in managing revolutions and dictating to foreign courts. The ticket-of-leave system dates from the time of his administration. Our transportation system had broken down, for in fact, the colonies would stand it no longer, and it fell to Lord Palmerston to find something to put in its place, and the plan of granting tickets of leave to convicts who had shown that they were capable of regeneration was the outcome of the necessity and of his administration. The measures to abate the smoke nuisance by compelling factories under penalties to consume their own smoke is also the offspring of Palmerston's activity in the Home Office. The factory acts were extended by him. He went energetically to work in the shutting up of the graveyards in the metropolis, and in a letter to his brother he declared that he should like to put down beer shops and let shopkeepers sell beer, like oil and vinegar and treacle, to be carried home and drunk with wives and children. This little project is worthy of notice because it illustrates, more fairly perhaps than some far greater plan might do, at once the strength and the weakness of Palmerston's intelligence. He could not see why everything should not be done in a plain, straightforward way, and why the arrangements that were good for the sale of one thing might not be good also for the sale of another. He did not stop to inquire whether, as a matter of fact, beer is a commodity at all like oil and vinegar and treacle, whether the same consequences follow the drinking of beer and the consumption of treacle. His critics said that he was apt to manage his foreign affairs on the same rough-and-ready principle. If a system suited England, why should it not suit all other places as well? If treacle may be sold safely without any manner of authoritative regulation, why not beer? The answer to the latter question is plain, because treacle is not beer. So people said with Palmerston's constitutional projects for every place. Why should not that which suits England suit also Spain? Because, to begin with, a good many people urged, Spain is not England. 
There was one department of his duties in which Palmerston was acquiring a new and somewhat odd reputation. That was in his way of answering deputations and letters. The mere routine business of the Home Office, Palmerston writes to his brother, as far as that consists in daily correspondence, is far lighter than that of the Foreign Office, but during a session of Parliament, the whole time of the Secretary of State, up to the time when he must go to the House of Commons, is taken up by deputations of all kinds and interviews with members of Parliament, militia colonels, etc. Lord Palmerston was always civil and cordial. He was full of a peculiar kind of fresh common sense, and always ready to apply it to any subject, whatever. He could at any time say some racy thing which set the public wondering and laughing. He gave something like a shock to the Presbytery of Edinburgh when they wrote to him through the moderator to ask whether a national fast ought not to be appointed in consequence of the appearance of cholera. Lord Palmerston gravely admonished the Presbytery that the maker of the universe had appointed certain laws of nature for the planet on which we live, and that the weal or woe of mankind depends on the observance of those laws, one of them connecting health with the absence of those noxious exhalations which proceed from overcrowded human beings or from decomposing substances, whether animal or vegetable. He therefore recommended that the purification of towns and cities should be more strenuously carried on, and remarked that the causes and sources of contagion, if allowed to remain, will infallibly breed pestilence and be fruitful in death, in spite of all the prayers and fastings of a united but inactive nation. When Lord Stanley of Alderley applied to Lord Palmerston for a special permission for a deceased dignitary of a church to be buried under the roof of the sacred building, the Home Secretary declined to accede to the request in a letter that might have come from or might have delighted Sidney Smith. What special connection is there between church dignities and the privilege of being decomposed under the feet of survivors? Do you seriously mean to imply that a soul is more likely to go to heaven because the body which it inhabited lies decomposing under the pavement of a church instead of being placed in a churchyard? England is, I believe, the only country in which in these days people accumulate putrefying dead bodies amid the dwellings of the living, and as to burying bodies under thronged churches, you might as well put them under libraries, drawing-rooms, and dining-rooms. Lord Palmerston did not see what a very large field of religious and philosophical controversy he opened up by some of his arguments, both as to the fasting and as to the burial in churchyards. He only saw for the moment what appeared to him the healthy, common-sense aspect of the position he had taken up, and did not think or care about what other positions he might be surrendering by the very act. He had not a poetic or philosophic mind. In clearing his intelligence from all that he would have called prejudice or superstition, he had cleared out also much of the deeper sympathetic faculty, which enables one man to understand the feelings and get at the springs of conduct in the breasts of other men. No one can doubt that his jaunty way of treating grave and disputed subjects offended many pure and simple minds. Yet it was a mistake to suppose that mere levity dictated his way of dealing with the prejudices of others. He had often given the question his deepest attention, and come to a conclusion with as much thought 
as his temperament would have allowed to any subject. The difference between him and graver men was that when he had come to a conclusion seriously, he loved to express his views humorously. He resembled in this respect some of the greatest and the most earnest men of his time. Count Cavour delighted in jocose and humorous answers. So did President Lincoln. So at one period of his public career did Prince Bismarck. But there can be no doubt that Palmerston often made enemies by his seeming levity when another man could easily have made friends by saying just the same thing in grave words. The majority of the House of Commons liked him because he amused them and made them laugh, and they thought no more of the matter. But the war is now fairly launched, and Palmerston is to all appearances what would be vulgarly called out of the swim. Every eye was turned to him. He was like Pitt, standing up on one of the back benches to support the administration of Addington. For years he had been identified with the Foreign Office, and with that sort of foreign policy which would seem best suited to the atmosphere of war. And now war is on foot, and Palmerston is in the Home Office, pleasantly chaffing militia colonels and making sensitive theologians angry by the flippancy of his replies. Perhaps there was something flattering to Palmerston's feeling of self-love in the curious wonder with which people turned their eyes upon him during that interval. Everyone seemed to ask how the country was to get on without him and to manage its foreign affairs, and when he would be good enough to come down from his quiet seat in the Home Office and assume what seemed his natural duties. A famous tenor singer of our day once had some quarrel with his manager. The singer withdrew from the company. Someone else had to be put in his place. On the first night, when the new man made his appearance before the public, the great singer was seen in a box calmly watching the performance like any other of the audience. The new man turned out a failure. The eyes of the house began to fix themselves upon the one who could sing and who was sitting as unconcernedly in his box as if he never meant to sing any more. The audience at first were incredulous. It was in a great provincial city where the singer had always been a prime favorite. They could not believe that they were in good faith to be expected to put up with bad singing while he was there. At last their patience gave way. They insisted on the one singer leaving his place on the stage and the other coming down from his box and his easy attitude of unconcern and resuming what they regarded as his proper part. They would have their way, they carried their point, and the man who could sing was compelled at last to return to the scene of his old triumphs and sing for them again. The attitude of Lord Palmerston and the manner in which the public were turned upon him during the early days of the war could hardly be illustrated more effectively than by this story. As yet, the only wonder was why he did not take somehow the directorship of affairs, the time was to come when the general voice would insist upon his doing so. One day a startling report ran through all circles. It was given out that Palmerston had actually resigned. So far was he from any intention of taking on himself the direction of affairs, even of war or of foreign affairs, that he appeared to have gone out of the ministry altogether. The report was confirmed. Palmerston actually had resigned. It was at once asserted that his resignation was caused by difference of opinion between him and his colleagues on the eastern policy of the government. But on the other hand, it was as stoutly affirmed 
that the difference of opinion had only to do with the new reform bill which Lord John Russell was preparing to introduce. Now it is certain that Lord Palmerston did differ in opinion with Lord John Russell on the subject of his reform bill. It is certain that this was the avowed cause, and the only cause, of Palmerston's resignation. But it is equally certain that the real cause of the resignation was the conviction in Palmerston's mind that his colleagues were not up to the demands of the crisis in regard to the Eastern War. Lord Palmerston's letters to his brother on the subject are amusing. They resemble some of the epistles which used to pass between suspected lovers in old days, in which the words are so arranged that the sentences conveyed an obvious meaning good enough for the eye of jealous authority, but had a very different tale to tell to the one being for whom the truth was intended. Lord Palmerston gives his brother a long and circumstantial account of the differences about the Reform Bill and about the impossibility of a Home Secretary either supporting by speech a bill he did not like or sitting silent during the whole discussion on it in the House of Commons. He shows that he could not possibly do otherwise under such trying circumstances than resign. The whole letter, until we come to the very last paragraph, is about the Reform Bill and nothing else. One might suppose that nothing else whatever was entering into the writer's thoughts. But at the end, Palmerston just remembers to add that the Times was telling an untruth when it said that there had been no difference in the Cabinet about Eastern affairs. For, in fact, there had been some little lack of agreement on the subject, but it would have looked rather silly, Palmerston thinks, if he were to have gone out of office merely because he could not have his own way about Turkish affairs. Exactly. And in a few days after, Palmerston was induced to withdraw his resignation and to remain in the government, and then he wrote to his brother again, explaining how and all about it. He explains that several members of the cabinet told him they considered the details of the reform bill quite open to discussion and so forth. Their earnest representations and the knowledge that the cabinet had on Thursday taken a decision on Turkish affairs in entire accordance with opinions which I had long unsuccessfully pressed upon them, decided me to withdraw my resignation, which I did yesterday. Of course, Lord Palmerston quietly adds, what I say to you about the cabinet decision on Turkish affairs is entirely for yourself, and not to be mentioned to anybody, but it is very important and will give the Allied squadrons the command of the Black Sea. All this was very prudent, of course, and very prettily arranged. But we doubt whether a single man in England who cared anything about the whole question was imposed upon for one moment. Nobody believed that at such a time Lord Palmerston would have gone out of office because he did not quite like the details of a reform bill, or that the cabinet would have obstinately clung to such a scheme just then in spite of his opposition. Indeed, the first impression of every one was that Palmerston had gone out only in order to come back again much stronger than before, and that he resigned when he could not have his way in Eastern affairs, and that he would resume office empowered to have his way in everything. The explanations about the Reform Bill found as impatient listeners among the public at large as the desperate attempts of the young heroine in She Stoops to Conquer to satisfy honest Tony Lumpkin with her hasty and ill-concocted devices about Shakebag and Green and the rest of them, 
whose story she pretends to read for him from the letter which is not intended to reach the suspicious ears of his mother. When Lord Palmerston resumed his place in the ministry, the public at large felt certain that the war spirit was now at last to have its way, and that the dallyings of the peace-lovers were over. Nor was England left long to guess at the reason why Lord Palmerston had so suddenly resigned his office and so suddenly returned to it. A great disaster had fallen upon Turkey. Her fleet had been destroyed by the Russians at Sinope in the Black Sea. Sinope is, or was, a considerable seaport town and naval station belonging to Turkey and standing on a rocky promontory on the southern shore of the Black Sea. On November 30th, 1853, the Turkish squadron was lying there at anchor. The squadron consisted of seven frigates, a sloop, and a steamer. It had no ship of the line. The Russian fleet, consisting of six ships of the line and some steamers, had been cruising about the Black Sea for several days previously, issuing from Sebastopol, and making an occasional swoop now and then as if to bear down upon the Turkish squadron. The Turkish commander was quite aware of the danger and pressed for reinforcements, but nothing was done, either by the Turkish government or by the ambassadors of the Allies at Constantinople. On November 30th, however, the Sebastopol fleet did actually bear down upon the Turkish vessels lying at Sinope. The Turks, seeing that an attack was coming at last, not only accepted but even anticipated it, for they were the first to fire. The fight was hopeless for them. They fought with all the desperate energy of fearless and unconquerable men, unconquerable at least in the sense that they would not yield. But the odds were too much against them to give them any chance. Either they would not haul down their flag, which is very likely, or if they did strike their colors, the Russian admiral did not see the signal. The fight went on until the whole Turkish squadron, save for the steamer, was destroyed. It was asserted on official authority that more than 4,000 Turks were killed, that the survivors hardly numbered 400, and that of these every man was wounded. Sinope itself was much shattered and battered by the Russian fleet. The affair was at once the destruction of the Turkish ships and an attack upon Turkish territory. End of section 20